In his play, Dirty Hands, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, compares and contrasts two men and their political views and their views on life in general. One of the characters' name is Hoderer, and Hoderer is a man who desires power in order to accomplish means and use any means he can to accomplish the end goals that he has in mind. The second character is a man by the name of Hugo, and Hugo despises Hoderer's treachery. Hugo believes that Hoderer's actions contaminate and pollute the party's honorable, honorable goals. And throughout the play, Hoderer and Hugo have multiple conversations about morality and the decisions of moral, morals within the political life and within life in general. And there's a statement that Hoderer makes to Hugo that is very illuminating. Look what Hoderer says. How you cling to your purity, young man. How afraid you are to soil your hands. All right, stay pure. What good will it do? Why did you join us? Purity is an idea for a yogi or a monk. You use purity as a pretext for doing nothing. To do nothing? To remain motionless? Arms at your side? Wearing kid gloves? Well, I have dirty hands. Right up to the elbows. I've plunged them into filth and blood. Hoderer then leaves Hugo with a question. Hoderer asks Hugo a question that to this day plagues philosophers, politicians, theologians, and even us. Hoderer asks Hugo, Is it even possible to govern? or live innocently? Is it even possible to govern or even live innocently? You see, Hoderer acknowledges that to get things done, to achieve his ends, he has dirty hands. Hoderer lives by the philosophy that the end justifies the means, and Hoderer is willing to put his hands in the filth and in the blood to accomplish what he believes he needs to do to get things done. Hoderer gets his hands dirty to accomplish the ends that are necessary. I think this was a better idea on Thursday than it is today. (laughs) The thing is, is we live in the same type of world. We live in a world where many live by the philosophy that the end justifies the means. And unfortunately, sometimes you and I here in the church live by that same philosophy that the end justifies the means. Now I pray that this comes off, and it does. Sometimes we live, unfortunately, by that same philosophy, that the end justifies the means. And this morning, as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2, and if you haven't turned there, please turn there, 2 Samuel chapter 2, it's found on page 215 in the Bible that the church provides. We come to a story of conflict. 
we come to a story of conflict between the house of Saul and the house of David. They are entering into a civil war. Remember last week we learned that Saul and Jonathan had died in battle and that David mourned the death of Saul and Jonathan, that he grieved for them. But then in the course of time, his grieving ended and David was appointed king of Judah. But David was only appointed king of his home tribe, Judah. There are 11 other tribes within the kingdom of Israel that didn't participate in that anointing. And that brings out a conflict. It brings up a conflict between the house of Saul and the house of David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and 3, where we're going to be this morning, there are two men that jump to the forefront of the story. David goes into the background and two men, Abner and Joab, Abner from the house of Saul and Joab from the house of David, jump to the fore of the story. And we see the story of these two men play out in these chapters. And both of these men, Abner and Joab, have dirty hands. So now let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. And buckle your seatbelts because this is an intriguing story and it's long, but hang on because there is much truth that we are going to learn from this story. And a shout out to Mason's young adults. If you have your red folders, open them up and start taking notes. Verse 8, meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Here, Abner, the commander of Saul's army and also Saul's cousin, jumps to the forefront of our story. Remember I said Saul and Jonathan have been killed in battle. But it's interesting because Abner, the commander of Saul's army, somehow escapes death. Saul and Jonathan are killed. Abner somehow lives through the battle. And now Abner takes Saul's only remaining son, Ishbosheth, and he orchestrates events, and Abner makes Ishbosheth king over all of Israel. Abner's manipulation gives those in the house of Saul a chance to retain power. Now remember, David is the one that God has declared is going to be king over all of Israel. But now he's only been anointed king over Judah. But here, Abner. Amner single-handedly makes Ishbosheth the king over the Israel, the 11 tribes of the north. In the house of Saul, now that Saul is dead, it's Abner. It's Abner who holds all the power. It's Abner who pulls the strings. It's Abner that moves and manipulates things in order to achieve the ends that he wants. And Abner, as will become clear later, is not interested in Ishbosheth. Abner is interested in Abner's interests. Abner has dirty hands. But obviously, this manipulation 
does not go unnoticed by the house of David. So a conflict arises between the house of David and the house of Saul because obviously David believes that he's going to be king over all of Israel and Ishbosheth wants to be king over all of Israel as well. So look at the conflict that starts. Look at verse 12. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zariah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. We're now introduced to Joab. Joab is one of the commanders in David's army. Joab is the son of Zariah, David's sister. So Joab is actually David's nephew. And so now we get this picture of Abner and Joab coming to the pool of Gibeon with all their men, with their armies, and they're facing off. And Abner has this idea. Let's each select 12 men and have each of these 12 men battle in a contest of champion. Winner takes all. Joab agrees. So the two teams of 12 face off against each other. However, the contest doesn't go as expected. When all the 24 face off against each other, all 24 simultaneously and immediately die because their opponent, at the same time, they each stick the dagger in each other's sides. So all 24 of them die. The contest doesn't go as expected. So what happens then is the men of each army jumps out, and they enter into a vicious battle. And in this battle, initially Joab has a victory, and Abner experiences initial defeat. But the battle has very personal consequences for Joab. There's one incident that is brought to our attention. Look at verse 18. The three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. Think Tom. (laughs) Seriously, think Tom. Here we learn that Zariah has three sons. And although these sons are David's nephews, they don't have an undivided heart for God like David does. David is prayerful. David is thoughtful. David is generous. His nephews, on the other hand, are willful, they're violent, they're impetuous. They're not like David. These guys do not have an undivided heart for God. Look at verse 19. Look what Asahel does. Asahel chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. This must have been a remarkable event. Asahel chasing Abner, Abner pleading with Asahel to stop, and eventually thrusting the butt of his spear into Asahel's gut, 
killing him on the spot. Look at what the text says. Every man stopped at the place where Asahel died. Every man stopped, transfixed by the horror of Asahel's death. And think of Joab, the brother. Joab, the brother, must have stopped as well, and he must have looked at his brother laying there dying on the field of battle. But Joab, because he's violent, because he's impetuous, because he's willful, only stops for a moment, and he picks up the chase of Abner in the house of Saul and their army, and he chases Abner in the house of Saul because Joab is going to get Abner. But Abner gets to high ground. He gets to high ground that is easily defendable. So Joab has to stop the chase, and Abner calls out, and he says, let's have a ceasefire. Nobody is going to win here. And so Joab agrees to the ceasefire. But this doesn't end the war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And Joab certainly doesn't forget the death of his brother. And then we turn to chapter 3, verse 1, and we see a summary statement on the war and how things are going. Verse 1 of chapter 3. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Earlier in chapter 2, we're told that this was a seven-year war. But now we're told that David is getting stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul is getting weaker and weaker. But look at underneath, something else is happening. Look at verse 6. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Even though the house of Saul is weakening, even though the house of Saul is getting weaker and weaker, Abner himself is getting stronger. How do you think Abner is getting stronger? Abner's getting stronger because he's manipulating. He's the power broker. He's lying. He's deceiving. He's cheating. He's moving himself into positions of power and decision in order to make himself stronger. He's getting stronger, and he's getting so much stronger. Look what he does next. Look at verse 7. Now Saul had had a concubine named Ritzpah, daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said, and he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath." and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Didn't I tell you this was like a soap opera? This is crazy stuff. Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with his father Saul's concubine. And notice here, Abner doesn't say that he didn't do it. Instead, he deflects. He avoids a direct answer. Look at his indignant response. Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? He's clearly trying to avoid answering the question. Why? Because he slept with Saul's concubine. 
And this is not an act of passion or an act of love or even an attempt at marriage. Abner has dirty hands. Abner is doing this to declare his power over the house of Saul. Abner's coming out and saying, yeah, I get Ishbosheth that you're king, but I made you king. You're a puppet king. I have the privileges of the king. I can sleep with the king's concubine. Abner is declaring his power. And Ishbosheth keeps quiet because he's rightly afraid of Abner. Abner is now in control of the house of Saul and all of Israel. But Abner, Abner's smart. And Abner is cunning. And Abner understands, Abner realizes that the house of Saul is getting weaker and weaker. So ever the manipulator, ever the power broker, Abner decides that he is going to change sides. He is no longer going to be for the house of Saul. He is now going to switch his allegiance to the house of David. Abner knows that it's God's will for David to reign as king over all of Israel. And now it's Abner who is going to be the kingmaker. It's now Abner who is going to do the deal that is going to get David to reign over all of Israel. So Abner approaches David with an offer. Look at verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. David responds, verse 13, Good, said David, I'll make an agreement with you, but I demand one more thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. Ouch. <laughs> well, David accepts Abner's offer. Abner then goes to the leaders of both sides and he negotiates the final agreement. And after the agreement is reached that will install David as king over all of Israel, they celebrate with a feast. And then at the end of the feast, the text says that David sent Abner away in peace. Everything's good, right? Perfect place for the story to end. But what about Joab? He's not going to be happy. Imagine the amazement and the distress when Joab returns from a military raid to learn that David has entered into an agreement with Abner and that David sent Abner away in peace. Abner is the enemy. Abner will never be Joab's friend. And this war may be over for the house of Saul and the house of David, but this war is not over for Joab. Joab is violent, and Joab is willful, and Joab is impetuous. So what does Joab do? Joab rebukes David for letting Abner go. Look at verse 24. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he's gone. You know Abner, son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Well, apparently David doesn't listen to Joab. 
and David's decision stands. In David's mind, there is peace between David and between Abner, but to Joab, it's clear. Abner is the enemy, pure and simple, and Joab does not let this go. Instead, Joab secretly orders some messengers to chase after Abner and to bring him back to Hebron, probably with a false story. Look what happens upon Abner's return, verse 27. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway, as though to speak with him privately. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Joab's tricks Abner into coming back to Hebron. He tricks him to entering into the gateway of the city and he stabs Abner and Abner dies. And since this is no longer a time of war, this is now a time of peace, Joab's killing of Abner is now murder. Joab has dirty hands. Did I tell you? Modern day miniseries, most extreme soap opera ever, these two men that are in conflict with each other, representing the house of Saul and the house of David, these two men manipulate, lie, deceive, murder. These two men are men with dirty hands. Men that use whatever means available to them to accomplish the end they have in mind. But like I said earlier, this is just not a story from 3,000 years ago. This is a philosophy that animates much of our world today. The philosophy that the end justifies the means, that as long as there is a good result, I can do whatever it takes in my mind to get us to that result. But is that the way that God works? I have four observations from this story. I have four observations, and I'd like you to write them down. The first observation is this. God is not interested in politics. God is not interested in politics. Now, before some of you have a heart attack, listen to what I mean. God is not interested in the political maneuvering or manipulation or actions of men through guile, through deceit, through intrigue, through the garnering of popular support in order to achieve a desired goal. God is not interested in dirty hands to achieve an end. Abner and Joab both had dirty hands. Abner and Joab's dirty hands led to destruction and murder. You see, God is not interested in dirty hands. God wants our hands to be clean. He's not into political maneuvering or manipulation or deception to achieve ends. God wants our hands to be clean. Look what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, Finally, brothers, 
Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice and the God of peace will be with you. God is concerned with the means that we use. God wants our means to be true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. God wants our means to be all of those things. And what does Paul say? He says, put these things into practice. God is concerned with the means that we use. Second observation. It's not enough to be on the right side. It's essential also to work in the right way. It's not enough to be on the right side. It's essential also to work in the right way. Whose side was Joab on? David's side. Joab is on David's side. And therefore, because David is on God's side, arguably Joab is on God's side. Joab is on God's side. But Joab does not have clean hands. Because it's not enough to be on the right side. You have to work in the right way. Joab doesn't do the right things. He's not true, noble, honorable, pure. Joab deceives and murders. It's not enough to be on the right side. You have to do things in the right way. Think about those out there who are Christians, arguably Christians, and they hold picket signs. And the picket signs say, death to homosexuals, or God hates homosexuals. Is that the thing that God would do? Are those actions true, noble, pure, admirable, right? No, they're not. Or let's bring it a little closer to home. How often do we tell stories or half-truths or exaggerations in order to achieve what we think we need to achieve, in order to achieve an end that we desire? Or how about Facebook or Twitter? You call yourself a Christian and you post something on Facebook that is sexually leading or sexually explicit. Or you're on Twitter and you, you tweet something that's gossip or gossipy and you think that maybe it's funny or somebody's going to see it and they think you're humorous or edgy and that's going to get you more friends and you take this step just because. See, it's not enough to be on the right side. It's essential to always do things in the right way, to work right. God isn't interested in politics. It's not enough to be on the right side. You must work in the right way. And then the third one. Listen closely, because there's double negatives in this. It's not enough 
to not do the wrong things. We must do the right things. It's not enough to not do the wrong thing. We must do the right thing. It's clear from this story that Abner and Joab both have dirty hands. Abner and Joab, time after time, do the wrong thing. And as I mentioned earlier in this story, David is in the background. But at the end, when he jumps to the fore, when he learns that Joab has killed Abner, David immediately steps out and does the right thing. He immediately goes to God and confesses before the Lord that he had no involvement in this, that none of this blood is on his hands, and then he condemns Joab and Joab's actions. David immediately does the right thing. I think there's another example that's helpful. When Pontius Pilate turns Jesus over to the Jews for crucifixion, what does he do after he turns Jesus over? He washes his hands. Isn't it interesting that he wants to have clean hands? But his hands aren't clean. Why? Because he didn't do the right thing. It's not enough to not do the wrong thing. We must do the right thing. So when you're on Facebook and you see that one of your friends has posted something that is wrong, deceptive, manipulation, dirty, whatever, what do you do? You may not be posting the stuff yourself. You may not be tweeting the stuff, but what about when your friend does? What do you do? Do you do the right thing? Do you step out and say, hey, God isn't interested in politics. It's not enough to be on the right team. We must also work in the right way. It's not enough to not do the wrong things. We must do the right things. And then it's interesting that there's times in our lives where all of us are tempted to get our hands dirty. There's times in each one of our lives where we think, if I, if, I just, if I just do this, if I just get my hand a little dirty, I'll be able to accomplish the goal. If I just get my hand dirty, I'll be able to, to get the job done. If my hand's just a little bit dirty, I'll succeed. But you know what? Dirty hands always mess you up inside. Dirty hands are representative of sin, and sin always messes you up inside. And God says, don't get your hands dirty. You don't need to get your hands dirty to accomplish the goal, to succeed. I don't know what you are going through this morning. I don't know what barrier you have to get through. I don't know what obstacle you have to overcome. I don't know what is out there that you are facing. But what I do know is that God doesn't want you to have dirty hands doing it. And this is the point that I want you to leave with. 
I want you to remember when you face the obstacle, when you face the barrier, when that wall is in front of you, I want you to remember this. The battle is the Lord's. Amen. The battle's the Lord's. God is concerned with the means that we use. He wants us to keep our hands clean at all times, and he wants us to know. He wants you to know. He wants me to know that he is in charge of the ends. God is in control. What he asks of us is to keep our hands clean, and he says, you keep your hands clean, I will take care of the ends. When David is facing Goliath, he comes before Goliath and he shouts out to everybody. Everyone today will know that it's not by the sword and it's not by the spear that God brings salvation because the battle is the Lord's. So no matter what obstacle is there for you, no matter what hindrance, no matter what wall, no matter what barrier, all you have to do is keep your hands clean and trust and know that the battle is the Lord's. He's going to take care of it. God says, to have an undivided heart for me, keep your hands clean and remember that the battle is mine. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that each one of us here this morning would remember that the battle is yours. Lord, that you will take care of the ends. And Lord, I pray that you will help each one of us have clean hands. Lord, help us to recognize that we are responsible for the means, but you take care of the ends. And Lord, it is you who is in control. It is you that has the power. It is you that loves us. It is you that desires only the best for us. We recognize, Lord, that you, in and through your strength, can do all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.